Hi, lovely listeners. It's your host, Natalia. Just a quick note before we get the show started. The audio quality is a little off this episode, but don't let that deter you. Amani is still an incredible, amazing guest. So let's get it going. It's your host, Natalia, back for another episode of More Than a Pretty Face. And today I am so, so excited. Um, I know I say that every time, but truly every time I am very excited uh, to talk with Amani Barbarin. Like she, you may know her as Crutches and Spice on um, Instagram, uh, but she is a race and disabilities advocate and activist. Um, I am just really excited to talk with her today and about the role that she plays. Um, So Amani, would you like, I know I just introduced you, but do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So my name is Lonnie Barber and I'm a disability advocate. I talk about disability at the intersection of race, gender, sexuality. Um, and I just like, I really do love the disability community. So like I'm always talking about it because um, they matter so much to me. Um, I live outside of Philadelphia. I work for a disability nonprofit as a communications director. I have a master's in global communications. And I like to use social media to talk about disability and make sure that disabled people, more, most importantly, can find one another. Um, and so that's kind of the work I do. I, I think that's amazing because I think it's something, it's a, it's a group that's usually so outside of my purview that like I have to actively seek it out and when I found the work that you were doing I was like oh I have to follow her because I want to know more about this community especially with that intersectionality of like race because I think that's often like forgotten it's like yes black folks but like within black folks there's also another marginalization that we often don't talk about or hear about um what were you gonna say yeah, I mean, as as a black person, you know, I think talking about disability and race is extremely difficult. Uh, but like statistically speaking, um, black people have the second highest highest rate of disability in the country racially, mm. second only to um, indigenous people in the U.S. So, um, which is a case study in and of itself. But you know, there's so many of us in our community, we really don't talk about it enough, and I feel like leading people to both the community and the services they need is like the ultimate goal for me so for you because like obviously it's it's not necessarily our job as black people to teach people how to be it's not your job as a disabled person to teach people to be but what kind of led you to this to doing this work yeah so when i was um i had just graduated college um in 2014 and i was really kind of like lulling about and I was work I worked for two for two years for another nonprofit. Um and I was like, I really just want to tell stories. My undergraduate degree is in writing. Um and one of the things that I was really excited about was my teachers really gave me a lot of space to explore disability in media, disability in writing. 
disability, like post-colonial discourse. Um, and so when I thought, really thought, I really sat down and thought to myself, like, what do I actually want to do with my career? What do I want to do with my writing, especially? And I really just wanted to tell stories of black disabled people. Um, I had really grown up with not too many black disabled people that I could look up to. Um, and every time we did talk about black disabled people, I would always hear, well, they don't let their disability define them. I'm like, but, but where, where, where do I, where do I exist in history? Like, where does my identity exist in history? Where, where are the, what are the lessons that I can learn from my past? And what are some of the things that I can take with me going forward? And I really didn't see personally a lot of that going on. Um, and these conversations may have been happening on social media, but at the time I wasn't really privy to them. Because in 2014, I was like, I had like two followers, and one of them was my mom. Yes. Um, <laughs> maybe like a group on by, I don't know. Um, but yeah, so I really just wanted to talk about it. So I started the blog, and then um, I started writing and talking more with other disabled people. I started going to events for disabled people, specifically for disabled black people, and that's kind of where it all started. All started. So when you were younger, I want to take it back. Like, what was it kind of like for you growing up? Yeah, um, it was like a weird. I always felt like I was pivoting my identity to like to, to like how do I put this? I've always pivoted my identity in spaces where like my identity was most prevalent. So, for instance, like if I was in an all black church, I was black only. Like mm. if I was in. Um, if I was in a physical therapy, I was the disabled girl. Like at events for disabled kids, I was the disabled girl as well with everybody else. Um, I never really felt comfortable in a ton of women-led spaces because mm. it kind of desexualizes disabled people to begin with, and like um, people kind of see us as um, not really, not really victims to the same kind of gendered um, violence that a lot of women are. Um, and then I went to a predominantly white institution, so I was like, it was, like I spent a lot of time in my room growing up because I was like, I, I felt like I was masking all the time, and I was really just, just so it was it was so fracturing to my identity to constantly be changing based on who I was speaking to. Um, yeah. So I just was like, I'm gonna stay in my room. I, I grew up in the Philly suburbs, so you know, I had I still like one of the things I always tell people that like. Black, only black people get only black people can get is that I still have a black mom like <laughs> I just have a disability too like my mom was like taking no shit from me like at all <laughs> <laughs> like you know like how your mom used to say if you ask me one more damn time for yes. getting out of the car she would leave she would put me out of the car like, yes I, <laughs> I feel like my mom did that the other day like I don't <laughs> <laughs> Very much so an advocate for me, but it was. But she's still black. Uh, I don't know how to explain it. No, it makes sense. I 100% understand what you're saying. Because I, I, what you brought up a good point about feeling like you were switching identities depending on where you were, and I think that's something very unique to the black experience, especially if you are constantly in like white-led or non-black spaces. Like we have to conform to be able to be seen as palpable and as someone who also grew up like in a very white space like 
I totally get it. It's like you weren't black enough for the black folks, but obviously you're not white, but obviously you're not this. And so you're kind of like running around trying to figure out who you are. And then on top of that, being disabled. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a couple of times when people have done like the whole like skin, you know, when people like point at their skin and like, cause you're like seeing along to Fall Out Boy or, you know, um, other black people that I went to school with. Cause there's like one or two of us, you know? Um, and I was like, I'm, I, I grew up in the environment that I did, I can't help it. Um, but yeah, and, and then it didn't really, I never really felt uncomfortable in black spaces. I always felt like the way that we organize as black folk was just inherently inaccessible in a lot of ways. Mm. Because when we think about where black people hold space and where they create, where we create space, um, it a lot of times is where there's space available, and it doesn't always mean that we get to pick and choose what you know what accessibility looks like. Um, mm. So there's a, there's a certain level of understanding for me in that, and like understanding that my identity may not be um, recognized in some of those spaces, but I do feel as though there are tons of areas and arenas in which black people are like really putting in the effort to make sure that they're inclusive. Um, and growing up along these lines of like never being represented or never feeling like um, I'm going to be represented, I, I also grew up with parents that told me like, if, if you don't see it, do it. Like, if you don't see somebody doing what you want to do, or, or if you don't see people creating what you need, what you see needs to be created, do it yourself. Um, and so, like, that's very much on my mindset. I mean, it started with the blog, it's, you know, writing, and yeah. now doing other projects, hopefully film projects and TV projects later on, um, because I do think it is important. But, yeah, it's a very, it's very lonely um, mm. when you feel like you don't belong anywhere and that's a tough feeling to shake even in adulthood so when you were younger you know was there a moment when you were like oh I'm I'm different you know like I have Um, this thing about me yeah I mean there was always like little hints um I I, I don't think I ever had like like an aha moment where I was like oh my goodness I'm disabled (laughs) um my, I think, like, there were, like, little weird interactions. Like, my, my dad almost had to beat up a man because he would not stop trying to grab at me. Because, like, to like, either pray over me or give me money or something. But I'm like, and this, my dad's like, whoa, like, she, like, I think I was, like, two or three years old at the time. Uh, like, maybe a little bit older. But I do remember my dad being like, please stop t- trying to touch her. Because um, I was in a stroller for a very long time because I had surgery. Um... But yeah, like there were like very like moments like that where people kind of treated me like an oddity, where I knew that like I stood out in a way that most people were not used to. Um, and for the for the most part, my mom very my my mom and my dad very much had tried to like shield me from that. But at a certain point, my parents would sit me down and be like, "Listen, your people are gonna treat you differently. You're gonna have to work, you know, the whole thing twice as hard, half as far." But for me, they're like, "You're gonna have to work even harder than that because you're also disabled." Um, so yeah, like it was, there were little inklings here and there, but I never really had like an aha, like sudden moment when I was like, I'm disabled. It was a lot of little things here and there. At, when you were growing up, were there assumptions made about, you know, what you could and couldn't do? Or were there, did you feel like there were barriers put in place for you to do quote unquote normal activities that every kid, teenager growing up would do? 
oh yeah like every single thing like there was there was like every single thing there was like some issue um and that's where like my parents came in a lot um I remember I wanted to be like a ballerina when I was growing up I really wanted to dance and stuff and so my mom went to like the local dance studio um it was like a black owned dance studio that was affiliated with a lot of people in my church and the mom was like no I can't have her dance <laughs> my mom was like but you will <laughs> um, and so like my mom went back literally every single day for a year like we would like on our way home we would drive by and my mom would walk in and be like have you created a class yet are you ready to create a class yet every single day for almost a year to get this woman to, to open a class for me um because we were really t- big fans of like these all disability um it, all disability like activity groups because they were very much so white-led and like very mm, white-led mm. um and then also like they were there's very much so a lot of races towards my mom and me in a lot of those spaces like little children would try to boss my mom around like she worked for them like and she's like <laughs> i wish I somebody know. would <laughs> like you're like she would look at them like try again we're not gonna do this try again see what happens um and you know even like uh even in classes my teacher would not let me participate in some classes like i wasn't allowed to um cook during home ec because my teacher said my crutches made my hands dirty um okay the irony is that she's also on crutches i don't know what that was about are you kidding me i was like what is happening it's really the audacity sometimes i just Really, like she would make me fold hand towels for like an hour every single day during class, and I'd be like, I don't want to do this. This is not, it's not what I signed up for this class for. So my mom like marched in and was like, If you do not let my daughter in this class, I will make sure you never work again. Like so, did that event. And then she like a semester later, she ended up burning down the kitchen. Like when I was <laughs> wasn't even there, and she burned down the kitchen. Um, so yeah, there was like a ton of stuff where I was like. Um, where my parents advocated for me. The most alarming one, though, was my dad had to come into my school because I was living in New York City at the time. Um, and if you don't know, they don't really evacuate disabled people in emergency situations. Oh. And I had a panic attack because it was shortly after 9-11. And they, they left me in, like, a room to, like, because the drill said that, like, if, if in an emergency, um, I'm supposed to stay in this room and somebody's supposed to come and get me. Um, and ideally somebody's gonna be waiting with me. So yeah, so so my dad went up to the school like because these emergency procedures said, you know, I was supposed to be stuck in this room and my dad was like, Hell no. She's getting out. I don't care if she's the slowest one getting out of this building, she's getting out of this building. Um, you're not gonna leave my daughter in the facility, we're gonna get her out. So that's what we did. Like we took her just I would have to like figure out how to like go downstairs and my parents would make um, going up and down stairs in our apartment building or they would make us walk home some days because like we, we walk like 30 blocks from home um we live like 30 blocks away from school my mom would make me walk and tell me that the buses weren't working that day and i was like the buses are working i see them right there um, and i was like i was like really like trying to take my life into my own hands because i was like i can hop on a bus by myself she don't have to come with me it's like, like i can do it I promise I can do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so those are kind of like the little things that my parents would be like. Um, 
That's really incredible, though, because I, I, you'd like to think that everybody has parents like that once they have a child who is disabled, but not all are like that. And did you count your, I know it's an odd question to ask, but did you count yourself as lucky or did you just see this as normal? I really saw it as normal. Like, I didn't, because most of the spaces that you're in, especially for getting, if you're getting um, services and IEP services and things like that, are amongst other people who are also with uh, having that goal in mind. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. so I didn't really see that this wasn't normal. I thought it was. Um, because even the reason why I got a diagnosis was because of another black parent. Um, mm. also has cerebral palsy um, so I was surrounded by really really involved parents all the time even to the point where like these other parents were kind of like my parents sometimes like I would get in trouble with them like for something that I'm, like, I was doing at the time um, so yeah like I really thought it was normal and it wasn't until I was adulthood I was like oh wow like my parents are really just like different <laughs> than most parents because I've heard some horror stories you know, about the gaslighting, about disability. Yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for my parents because they they were very involved. Sometimes too much, but like very involved. <laughs> I also understand that to a deep, deep extent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So growing up, obviously you knew that you were gonna have to maneuver life differently, but were there some unforeseen challenges that you didn't hadn't prepped for? Adulthood it was like kind of like a blank space for me. Ooh. Um, yeah, when you're a child, you're like, you're very cute as a disabled person. Like, you're very adorable. Everybody mm -hmm. wants to take care of you. Everybody thinks you're such a cheerful little thing. It's so cute. And then when you get to adulthood, people don't know what to do with you because you are a self-guided person. Um, and everything that we have is is almost geared towards children mm -hmm. as society. Um, and then also, you know, the whole inspiration thing where, you know, People are telling your whole life that you're inspirational, you're amazing, um, you're, you're overcoming your disability, like you can do anything. And then when you get to college, when I got to college at least, I was kind of taken aback by like how difficult I found it to be. And I had like an entire identity crisis because I thought to myself, were people just passing me along, just to pass me along? Were people just like, were people just nice to me because they would felt sorry for me? Mm -hmm. um, and so I was like, am I really actually good at what I want to do, or am I just somebody that who, who's had smoke blown in their face this whole time? Um, so yeah, that was like a huge blank space for me. But like I said before, having professors that would say to me, you could study whatever you want. Like you can read about disability. We'll change the curriculum for you if you want to include more disability in what you're reading, in what you're doing. And I was like, I was so grateful for that because it kind of reset me in a way that I was like, a lot of these things were beyond my control. Like a lot of these perceptions about me that I had to live by were beyond my control. Um, and the way that we form stereotypes around disability. And so that was, I'm forever grateful to those professors who gave me that freedom. Was there a, a perception sorry, a perception or a stereotype about about you that people had that just, like, was completely un unfounded. You mean in terms of my disability or just, like, me as a person? I think both, because it's part of who you are, you know? Like, it's not who you are, but it's part of... 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, like people always thought I was inspirational just for like getting out of bed. Like I would just be like, <laughs> no, I mean, like every single day there was something. People would comment on my crutches or comment on my walking outside or comment on me being in the gym. Like everywhere I went, there was somebody either staring at me or um or like saying something about how I was. I was amazing to be outside and I'm like I'm in the grocery store like I'm not doing anything I too have to eat <laughs> I'm like I'm not doing anything like, I could be like eating cooking up from the package in the middle of the frozen food aisle and people still be like it's not beautiful I'm having a crisis yeah it's like this is not my best moment but thank you so much right yeah so that's and, and I think that a lot of people think that it's being called inspirational is like a benign comment, but really, um, it could be really harmful to build something up like that only for a lot of these social safety nets to just fail when you're yeah. I think I, I agree with you because I, I was reading something and I can't remember when, but this was like back when the pandemic um, was kind of in its full pandemicness. Um, and they were talking about the harmfulness of calling. Um, like healthcare workers heroes oh, yeah. and because it allows people to be like okay well if you die you were a martyr it's okay instead of like addressing the real issues and it's i i'm assuming from what you're saying it's the same thing with people that are disabled oh yeah that's how i knew the pandemic was going to be bad <laughs> like i like literally as soon as they started calling healthcare workers inspirational or heroes or whatever i was like oh. you're like oh it's gonna only go downhill from here because to be quite honest, like anytime somebody calls you inspirational or gives you a promotional a promotion in word only, in title only, you're sacrificial to that person. Like you there's like they're not gonna they're not gonna do nothing. Mm-hmm. Like, um and so as soon as I heard that healthcare workers are gonna be called inspirational or heroes, let's help our heroes, frontline heroes. I was like, We're gonna be in this for a really long time. <laughs> a very long time. A very long time. Um, so I, I want to know, cause I know you've talked about this and this is something I'm really interested on. So I would love for you to talk about in the podcast is the challenges that disabled people have faced during the pandemic that are even beyond what we would think of as challenges. Yeah. Um, there's been, it's innumerable, <laughs> you know, I, it's, it's, it's even hard to like go down the list. I mean, you know, disabled people have far less access to the, to the internet, so going remote didn't always work for everybody. Um, deafblind people did not have assistance to navigate the world because a lot of their communication is tactile, mm-hmm. so they like, they, a lot of times they couldn't do anything. Like, um, disabled people getting COVID tests, a lot of times it wasn't accessible. You couldn't find a place to do one. You, you know, medical appointments are canceled. Um, because hospitals are at capacity and we're using every single nook and cranny to treat COVID patients. Um, people couldn't get their meds because again, you need some, from some meds you need um, blood testing, uh, other type of testing to get those meds prescribed to you. There was also, <laughs> there was also um, hospital visitation. A lot of people couldn't get assistance in the hospital because usually you, you can bring your own assistant to come. Mm-hmm navigate with you and you, they were only limiting uh, hospital visits or or um, doctor's visits to the patient alone. Yeah. There was medical rationing guidelines that were in place so that, you know, if you 
if you were somebody that came down with COVID and you had a pre-existing condition um, that precluded, that gave you less of a chance of living a normal life after having COVID, they wouldn't treat you. That happened a lot of times, several, and they usually fell along disability and racial lines. Um, and so a lot of states were sued over that by disability organizations and mm-hmm. a lot of them had to rewrite medical rationing guidelines. But what is on the books and what actually happens are two, two mm-hmm. different things, especially when you're a person of color. Um, so I'm very wary about that for this new surge. Like, I feel like people don't get yeah. it. I feel like people's greatest fear is like getting the vaccine and having either a microchip or having autism, which says a lot in about itself, the anti-vaxxer movement. But I want to give people like a completely different fear. Like my fear is not is not experimentation on black folks. Mm-hmm. It's not you know 5G. It's not um, it's not you know like developing a disability. It's people getting COVID being unvaccinated and these hospitals reaching capacity again and black folk not being treated because we know the medical system has racism built in. So I don't like, why would we want to put our people in a position where this is happening? You know what I mean? Is there like a particular challenge that like, cause what you said, I was like, okay, that totally makes sense. But is there one that is, is if you know of it, that's like niche that like you're, the ones you said, I think, like, people could think of those, but, like, was there something that's, like, oh, probably nobody thought of this? Well, I mean, internet access. I mean, I think we don't really talk about disability community and access to services. And mm. um, one of the things I don't think we think about enough is that a lot of direct care workers are black and brown mm. women, right? Yes. So a lot of support workers are black and brown people who were not getting served um, medically for COVID and getting the resources to combat COVID or getting time off to, to stay home if they had COVID, which meant that direct care workers were the most likely to interact with the disability community who were the most likely to die because of COVID. You see, you see that like line mm-hmm. of thought? Mm-hmm. Um, and so like that was a unique issue. And I, I saw this picture like, and it, it is burned in my brain because it was one of the early pictures of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it was, almost every single direct care worker, every single nurse, CNA, whatever, was leading these people out of a building, um, I think like a group home uh, for disabled people. And every single disabled person in the chairs, I think were white and every single direct care worker was black or or Hispanic Mm. or excuse me, or Latinx, right? And so like, I, I think one of the things you don't realize as a community is just how much our fate as disabled people is tied to the well-being of black and brown people. Like, we don't talk about that enough. Um, And as soon as I saw that photo, I was like, oh my God, like, these people need to be treated immediately. Like, if if anything, they need to have the PPE they need. Um, And a lot of these places that were housing a lot of disabled people, still don't have adequate PPE like almost a year later Um, so yeah that was one of the unique issues that I saw very early on and I was like I don't think we know just how bad this is going to be because I know black people and um, Latinx people and indigenous people are not going to get proper treatment for this and it's going and because they are usually the the, um, 
the highest number of direct care workers we have, it's going to also affect the disability community. And then there's also a lot of direct care workers who are disabled themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot, of, you know, when we think about the rates of disabilities in communities of color, it's extremely high um, because racism disables. Um, so yeah, like that was one of the like big boiling, um, boiling over scenarios that I was like, this is gonna be a mess. That's, yeah, that's definitely something I didn't think of like, okay, most care work, direct care workers are black and brown folks. And then, so if they can't take time off to get treated or anything, oh, wow. Yeah, that's something I didn't, I didn't think about at all. I think, I mean, one of the biggest things we're learning is just how interconnected we all rely on one another. And then if like one thing falls, it's like a domino effect for the rest of the system. Yeah, and I, I try to tell people, like, just how connected to disability literally everything is. You know, you know the fight for 15, the, the, you know, the $15 minimum mm-hmm. wage, it didn't go go through all the way in part because of a disability policy. Um, mm-hmm. In, like, 38 states, it's legal to pay disabled people below the minimum wage. Um, it's called 14C legislation. Mm-hmm. And so at the federal level, <clears throat> they usually package for outlawing 14C legislation with a rise in a, to a $15 minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times there are family members and parents of disabled people who fight against the a minimum wage increase because they don't want some minimum wage outlawed. Because if you make too much money as a disabled person, you no longer qualify for health care ah. services. Mm-hmm. So like, mm-hmm. when I tell people like just how interconnected it is, it shocks them. And that's why I'm always like, disabled people need to be everywhere. <laughs> no, like, we need to be in every conversation. Because you would never think about that nuance if you weren't talking to people in the disability community. Um, same with voting. A lot of these voter-led efforts to restrict voting along from the GOP go along the lines of disability. Like, standing in the line the entire time, like, that's the rule you want to make? Making sure people don't eat in line? Like... That, that would affect diabetics. Yes. You know, like, yeah. You know, we harm communities of color a lot of times by attacking them on the basis of their disabilities. Because like I said before, communities of color have the highest rates of disability. So when you legislate based off a disability, you, you basically uh, restrict people of color. Mm-hmm. So how, like, what was the first room that you got in that you... I guess where you weren't seeing disabled people before you were like okay i'm finally in this room i can finally talk about everything that you just said i mean there's tons of rooms that i walk into where people are like oh i never thought about that you know and sometimes it's even in medical settings mm. uh, which is very alarming because <laughs> like oh no <laughs> <laughs> i'm like that's alarming um but yeah you know i think I think the one room where I was just kind of like, why? I think churches for one, mm. like, because like a, there are several churches that are also polling places, places, um, and churches are not federally required to adhere to the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, there's uh, any leftist spaces. I feel like I feel like a lot of leftist spaces are like, oh, disability, that's cute, <laughs> but. Um, there's um, prison abolition I think a lot of times really kind of just not talking about disability enough um, 
like 30 to 40 percent of all prisoners in jails and prisons have a have a disability um there's the whole food desert conversation climate change conversation like there's literally every every aspect to life and every single political issue that we have almost entirely ignores disabled people unless disabled people are the person to be like hey by the way um yeah, there's so many conversations. I can't even like, it's hard for me to even go through them and be like, wait, they thinking about straw bands? Um, there was, they, like, it's a whole, it's a whole wide range of things. Um, like, I can't even pinpoint like what conversation was like, you didn't even think about this? No, I can't even tell, honestly. With all of that, like, do you feel overwhelmed? Because how? I mean, do you feel like you have to be an expert on every single thing in the way it affects or affects disabled folks? No, I don't feel like I have to be an expert. I feel like I have to listen. Um, the only, like, I think that we get caught up in this idea that we have to be everything to everyone or the idea that we have to know everything at all times. And that's just mm-hmm. not, it's an impossible threshold to meet. But if we take it upon ourselves to actually listen to those in our community and make sure that we're not harming them further by by wanting to speak first and listen later, mm-hmm. then we can be better by our community. I don't feel any sort of stress or pressure to know it all. I feel stress or pressure to get it right once I do know it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really where my intention lies is behind listening to to my community i can't know everything and they're and they're really quick to be like listen that's not right that's not okay i'm like you're right i didn't think about that perspective and being collaborative with members in the disability community has been so helpful and so valuable because i don't like my greatest fear my greatest fear as an advocate is that i will say something think it's okay and then somebody i've never seen or never met is affected by a perception that i have um, I perpetuated um, that I'm doing harm without knowing it. That's my greatest fear. But I don't feel that much of a pressure to know everything mm. that. And I also, I also like really kind of like fold my hands and like try to, to try to listen to issues because there's some issues that I should not be speaking on. Like <laughs> you know, like like cause I feel like every like like uh, my TikTok feed is all about this conversation around when trans people should disclose in dating in dating or whatever and I'm like I feel like it's none of my business like I'll, like whatever a trans person needs to do to keep safe is like do it like like that's you know like I, I feel like there's some conversations where I'm like why do people act like we I need they need my opinion everywhere like it shouldn't be my opinion it should be uplifting the voices of those who are most affected um and so that's really where I try, that's how I try to um, lean into those types of conversations is not to uplift my own voice but to make sure people who are most affected um, have a space to lend theirs. I 1000% agree with you because I think that like right now being part of like a hashtag activist or advocate um, and something that we because I'm in news something that we write a lot about is like people wanting to say stuff when they have no understanding of what it is and I think you can support folks but not say anything yeah like I think it's like you can support 
uh, trans lives, you can support disabled lives, you can support black lives without having to put your face at the forefront or put your two cents into something and inviting people to give up that are different from you and do know about those issues a platform to, to speak on. And I think that like that's something I see on TikTok all the time is the um, is people that I'm like, why are you talking about this topic? Yeah. No yeah. connection to the community. <laughs> yeah. Like, one of the things I try to tell people is that if you really want to be an ally, create space without centering yourself in it. Like, you can always, you can use your platform and lend it to other people who may not have the reach that you have. You can do all those things. But I feel like there's a lot of times where allies... <laughs> Girl, you don't have to whisper, because we know... <laughs> mountains or whatever um i feel like there's a lot of allies who will center themselves in their advocacy um for other people like i center myself in my advocacy for disabled for disability race because i am the things like i am those things um but like for other things i don't feel a need to center myself um and i i don't like i wouldn't want to be you know, like, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, why am I standing here being like, hello, today, we should be supporting blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And here I, and here's me standing here for you all to look at. <laughs> Who cares? Um, but, yeah, I think that we really need to get used to passing the mic. Mm-hmm. Not even picking up the mic. Don't even, just show up to the hall. Yeah. And like, hang out. <laughs> open the door, shut the door, they need the privacy, <laughs> do the things, but like make sure that, you know, for, you know, push off wards of, pro, of counter protesters, do what you need to do, like, and then move along, like. You push in. But now that you have, like, this big platform, can you tell me about like the challenges that come with that? Because like you said, when you started, you're like it was two followers, my mom, and a Groupon bot, and here we are now, when that is most certainly not the case. So, yeah, what I has mean, that been it, like? It, it it can be very overwhelming. Like, um, like you were talking about before, people expect you to know everything at all times that's going on in the internet, and I'm like, people, the internet is a vast space, <laughs> a vast space. I'm not going to get every single note in Nook and Cranny by the time you back through it. Like, it's just not going to happen. Um, and I feel like we hold this, we hold people to, like, this impossible threshold of knowing everything at all times. Um, like, that's just not possible. Um, I, there's so, so many people talking, like, <laughs> like in, in my notifications, and I don't mind it, but it is kind of like, oh my god. Um, you're like, oh wow. Um, there's also um, people like who try to troll me. Um, I've had my bio printed on neo-Nazi websites. I've had um, blog, uh, podcasts um, try to make me out to be the enemy of the working class, and I've had people attack me for wanting my groceries delivered. Like the most benign thing. Um, I want my groceries delivered. What? <laughs> it was. I was pissed because like less than two months later the pandemic started I think and I was like mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay <laughs> um yeah uh there have 
been, yeah, there's been like all the run of mills stuff, and I really try to take it with a grain of salt, um, because, you know, like, it is my job, but it's, I, I, I do kind of feel like I know what I'm getting into to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. I'm a black woman on the internet. <laughs> like, like, it's not, I don't you know, okay. It's Tuesday, like, I don't know what to tell you. Right, and, like, when I tell people something, they're, like, shocked. And I say to them, it's, like, a Tuesday. Like, you said, it's, like, a Tuesday. Yeah. Um, but does that, but has any of that ever gotten to you in a way that you're, like, maybe I need to take a step back. Maybe this is not the space that I need to be in. I have trouble with feeling like people are telling me what to do. delivery grocery thing happened um people were like attacking me I, I actually blocked like a hundred thousand accounts and I thought like maybe I should lock my account and I locked my account I think for like maybe an hour I was like at this I hate them I hate that they think that they have the power to do this to me mm-hmm. um, and so I was like no nah, I'm gonna be myself regardless I don't care what these people have to say and I don't like the feeling that people can manipulate me in that way and manipulate me into being quiet because they decided to be ableist. No. You know, like, <laughs> I hate it. I'm not going to do it. Um, yeah. I, 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 I tried, I've stepped away, like, for maybe a couple days at a time, and people thought I was dead. Like, <laughs> people were like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm fine. I'm just, just taking a moment. I'm like, taking a, taking a day, I promise. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, that was the only time when I really thought, oh my god, um, there's going to be an issue. Like, I think also when the neo-Nazi, like, there's some French, like, alt-right publication that printed my bio on their website or whatever, and I maybe, like, maybe for three minutes I shut down. I, like, uh, locked my account, but I was like, no, at you. <laughs> but like I said, I have a very belligerent personality. Like, I don't like people, I don't like the idea that people can. Yeah, can intimidate you in that way. Right, like, I don't like that at all. So, um, what is an issue maybe that you're focusing on right now that we, as the outside collective, should be paying more attention to? If any. I mean, there's all of them. See, that's the thing. There's, all, there's like, all, like, it's all of them. Um, Pay attention to all the things. But if there's something that, like, you really want to, like, narrow in and you're like, hey, this is something that I feel like is not getting it the attention it deserves and we should be chit-chatting about it yeah i mean home and community-based services is a big thing right now i'm in the disability community always has been to be quite honest Mm -hmm. Um, around the 70s they started closing down state-run institutions with good reason they were horrific i mean horrific um you should watch the penhurst documentary if anybody's listening penhurst 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 okay i will make sure to have a link in the bio it's horrifying. So tr- major trigger warnings on that on that movie. Um, just letting you all know. But um, since that time, they've been closing out institutions. Um, and with the pandemic, about like one third of all COVID-related deaths happened in congregate care settings like nursing homes, student institutions, and things like that. And so home and community-based services are basically services that you could have in your home. Um, and expanding them so that people can stay safely in their home, uh, also age into their home, 
um, without having to sell and go to a nursing home is what the goal on the table is right now. Um, I believe they voted on the infrastructure package recently. I think there's kind of like an addendum with a $400 billion package for home community-based services. Mm-hmm. We need to support that as much as possible. Um, we also need to support an increase in Social Security uh, income for people because right now disabled people are expected to live off of less than $800 a month, um, which is just like... Which is like, it's not possible. Like, Girl, where? <laughs> Right, right. Like, where? Um, there's no place in the United States that a disabled person could live off of $800. <laughs> like, I'm like, what are you all thinking? And it really hasn't raised in like decades. Um, so yeah, like supporting an increase in um, the uh, in social security income for people with disabilities. And it's going to be necessary because there's like COVID-19 was a mass disabling event. Like we're going to have to look at disability services mm-hmm. di- henceforth um because i don't think that the system as it is built right now is equipped for the because there's going to be millions of people who um will need services and things like that so uh, home community based services increasing in um social security income uh, expanded supports um and also if you live in a state that has not expanded medicaid like believe them into expanding medicaid <laughs> <laughs> bully them um those are her words i'm trying to keep my job but those are her words <laughs> i'm legally supposed to be keeping my job too oh, oh, i didn't say that um, but yeah you know write your write your representatives also can we just say can i just say to people especially black folk this is your time i'm just here as a conduit <laughs> okay black folk i want to let you know something elected officials work for you okay they work for you Okay, call them if you don't know what your ser- what services you're entitled to, and you need to like find supports and things like that. Call them if you need help navigating your region. Call them; they work for you. Like, don't let them sit in that office and decorate it and then be done. No, like, <laughs> like call them, like push them, and push them on the things you're passionate about. Okay, call them directly. It, it counts. It counts for something. I promise you, it counts. That's that's my sentence. And now she's step down, folks. Uh, <laughs> um, I I, I want to know, you know, also what is next for you. So many things. <laughs> well, I'm working on a TV. Well, I was supposed to be um, shooting a, a web series prior to the pandemic. Um, I was I wrote a full web series on my dating life. Ooh, um, fun! Right, it's so excited. Um, and so I've I've been reworking that and rewriting it during the pandemic, and hopefully somebody will pick it up eventually. Um, because I really I just want to see Black disabled people represented, um, in our own stories in our own voices. So that's a goal of mine. Um, I'm also submitting my book proposal to publishers, so hopefully that'll come to fruition soon. Um, yeah, doing way more web content, hopefully doing that, because um, I do work a full-time job and then I do all this stuff on the side. I understand. So, I understand deeply. <laughs> yeah, I need, like, an assistant or something. Like, and by the way, if it's not in my calendar, it doesn't exist, so, like... 
and I don't, I don't find, I try to, whenever I try to absorb media, I just try to, like, find joy in it a, a little bit, um, but yeah. No, I, I fully and 1000% agree. Um, I, I also wanted to ask you, because this is something like I know is a shortcoming in my life, like what are little ways that we can become less ableist? Yeah, so one of the ways that I tell people to come, become less ableist is like to evaluate the ways in which you're overextending yourself and your internalized ableism. Because once you could take a look inside, the more you can explore about how your perceptions have been formed by the outside, and then you can start identifying those systems beyond you. So like, for instance, me, one of the ways my internalized ableism manifests is that I walk really fast <laughs> um, because I always fear that I'm, I'm in somebody's way um, mm. and, that somebody's hurt, and I'm holding somebody back because I'm going too slow. Now, I'm going on the opposite end of the spectrum and mosey my way across the street these days. <laughs> but, and people don't like it, but I don't care anymore. Um, but yeah, like understanding like what are the things, that, what are the actions that you perform to kind of present as more able when you are really mm. in reality struggling to do A, B, or C, you know? Mm. Um, mm. Also like undoing like ableist language, you know, in your everyday vocabulary. It works like um, drink wearing crazy, um, insane, um, lame, dumb, those are all words that really either diagnoses or are closely tied to disabilities, which is why they are insults. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, so understanding how that language takes um, takes a role in everyday society and then also de- deconstructing like functioning labels as well. Because mm. um, we have like this idea of like high functioning, low functioning. And in the reality, it's so much more diverse. Like one person, one person can have such a diversity within them of uh, accommodation needs and dis- like the way their disability manifests. That like those labels don't make any sense. Um, and then we also like place value on people whether they're high functioning or low functioning, mm. and then we try to insert ourselves based on whether they, we think they're higher functioning or low functioning. So on doing this, you know. Like unraveling that is also incredibly powerful. I'm also supporting disabled people, like, and also making sure that when you plan things and do things, that you take accessibility into mind. Um, like, don't, like, don't, don't think of disability as an afterthought. It should be a foundation. Mm, um, mm. Building that in first will all make your events, make your inclusion. Um, disability inclusive from the ground up rather than kind of like tacking it onto the side later mm, that's a good way to put it that disability should be your foundation that's a really good way to put it yeah. of how to build up from that um Amani so this is the last question I have that I ask all my guests is how do you define being a woman or womanhood I think I define womanhood as creating space um, for those around me. I think that womanhood, at least as I see it, is built on community mm-hmm. and inclusivity and including people who are unlike ourselves to um, to the table. And I think that it includes queer people, it includes disabled people, it includes everybody. Um, womanhood is 
giving somebody a, check, a second chance to make a first impression um, and not letting stereotypes dictate the way you speak and interact with people. Um, because as women, I think we have that issue as well, where people look at us and assume things about us that are not true based off of how we dress, based off of how we talk, walk our skin color, everything. And so understanding that if that can happen to us, we need to be more bold and build a space in which people are free from those perceptions. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much. Amani, it's been such a joy having you on the show today. Thank you so much. Um, before we head out, is there anything that you want to give a shout out to, kudos to, anything like that? Yeah, all my girls, Tinu, T, Tiana, they all have T names. <laughs> that just, that just, yeah, that just, yeah. It just clicked for you? Mm. <laughs> uh, uh, Raya, uh, Portia, love all y'all. Oh, my disabled black folks. Mm, yes. Love to all of you. Thank you all for supporting my work and everything you all have done. Um, and thank you so much for asking me to be here tonight. Oh, of course. I'm so happy to have you. Um, y'all, check out Amani, Crutches and Spice, um, on Instagram. And then, of course, she has a TikTok and a Twitter. Um, I'm going to link it all in the show notes, of course. Um, thank you all for listening to another episode of More Than a Pretty Face. If you'd like to connect with the show, please follow on Instagram and Twitter at prettyfacelady3. And if you'd like to email me because you want to come on the show, know someone who'd come on the show, or want to say hi, please email me at prettyfacewomen at mtapfpodcast.com and talk to you soon.